Welcome back to part two of Finding and Creating True Intimacy. This is Dr. Kevin Skinner. Today, we're going to be talking about some very important concepts as it relates with your values. And what I want to emphasize today is the process of finding and creating true intimacy is acting consistent with what your values are. So I'm going to be spending a little bit of time with that. Then I'm going to be talking about synchronized messages and the importance of synchronizing your messages in all of your relationships. And basically what we're talking about here is putting your beliefs in harmony with your behaviors. Now, why do people fail in relationships? Because their beliefs and their behaviors are not synchronous or incongruity. So they're not congruent. Next, we're going to be talking about what prevents us from finding true intimacy, and I'll be introducing six concepts that prevent us from achieving true intimacy. And then we're going to be talking about how to overcome a fear of intimacy, which is absolutely essential. Now, when we get to that point, we're going to take some time and we're going to begin the process of understanding gender differences in intimacy and and how different men and women approach intimacy in relationships. And there's been some interesting research on that. So that's kind of an outline of where we're going to be going today. Let me, uh, first of all, have you start off and we're going to be talking about your values. Now, if you were to write down a list of 10 things, and this is something I encourage you to do, make a list of the 10 things that you value the most. Now, in this list, it may be your family, it might be your religion, it might be your freedom, it might be your work. What are the 10 things that you value the most? Now, once you've written this down, I'm going to ask you to take a little bit of time and identify the five most important things of those 10 things. So you had a list of 10. Now I want you to basically take the top five, rank order those top five things and say, okay, these five matter the most of those 10. Now, once you've got the list of five things that you value the most, now choose two of them. What are the two most important things that you value? Now, this is getting a little bit hard for most people because they say, well, which one am I going to take off? Which one do I, you know, what, what do I really value the most? What we've discovered, in the, and let me explain a little bit while you're doing this. What we've discovered is many people, they know that, you know, they really don't know what they value. And then when they start writing it down, they say, well, if, you know, my family, my children, it may be my spouse, or it may be, you know, maybe it's my photos, maybe it's my computer. What is it? What are the things that I value the most? When you ask them to write this list of 10, it's easy. Then as they condense it down to five, it's maybe a little bit difficult. But when you go from five to two, it's really challenging. What are the things that you value most? Now, once you've got the list down to two, now I want you to identify of those two things, what is the most valuable thing to you? Now, I don't know what that thing is for you, but now my question is, is are you spending the time with that thing that you value the most? Are you nurturing it? Are you developing it? What are you doing with that? And for me personally, that thing that I value the most, there's a lot of things that I value, but on this earth, the thing that I value the most is my relationship with my wife. So am I nurturing that relationship with her or am I not? And if that's the thing that I value the most, I have to step back and say, am I spending time with the thing that matters the most to me? And what we've discovered in the process of finding true intimacy, that many people, they spend their time with value on things that are not of the most value to them. So in essence, they're wasting their time. So my question to you, we started off with 10 things that you value went to five to two and then to one. Now evaluate, are you spending time with that thing? And as you realize whether you are or aren't, 
make some strategies or a game plan of what you will do to do something different. All right, so that's the concept of understanding your values. And here's what we've discovered about values. If you look at most of the research, people value what they value because something has brought them some type of a reward, some type of happiness. Now, whether that be a relationship or whether that be their job, making money, whatever that may be, the things that they value is generally where they should be spending their time. Sadly, most people aren't. And if you want to do something that will change your life, spend time nurturing the things that you value the most. All right, so that's the concept of values. Now I want to introduce a concept. It's called synchronized messages. This is an exciting concept to me. And and here's the reason why. Because far too often, people's messages are not synchronized at all. The way that they feel inside is not the way that they are acting outside. For example, I I often ask uh, individuals when they go into a room, uh, maybe they're single and they go into this room where there are other singles. And I ask them, okay, so when you walk into the room, what is your very first thought? And it's always amazing with some of the responses I get. Oh no, they're looking at me, or nobody's going to like me, or nobody's going to want to talk to me, or I wonder if I look okay. Now, think about just those four statements. Everybody's looking at me. Nobody's going to want to talk to me. Nobody's going to like me, right? You think about those things. Now, here's the message. What, What message is the people around them picking up? Think about it. They walk into this room and the message that they're basically sending out is, don't look at me, you aren't going to like me, I'm not worth your time, and that's the message that they're sending out. Well, what's their chances of success if that's the message that people are receiving? There's no way that they can succeed if they go in thinking about that. So I say, well, wait a second. If your message is that you there's, there's something wrong with you and people are picking that up, is it any wonder that you're not succeeding when you go out and socially interact? Now, let's take this into the home life. Let's talk about married couples for a minute. You're frustrated with your spouse. Your spouse can tell that you're frustrated and they ask what's wrong and you say, oh, nothing. Well, that's an unsynchronized message. What you are portraying to them is not accurate with what you are saying. And so it's an unsynchronized message and that creates problems not only in our relationships, but even if we're not in a relationship, the message we're sending to people prevents us from creating intimacy or allowing intimacy to occur in our lives. So what I want to say is that we have to overcome our fears to help us achieve our deepest desires. And the way that we do that is synchronizing our messages. Can you imagine that person who I described going into that social setting, walking into a room with these types of thoughts instead of the fears that I described earlier? Wow, I wonder who I can meet tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Are there people here that I recognize? Who would I be most interested in talking to? I'm going to have a fun evening. And they walk into the room with that type of mindset. Can you, can, can you tell the difference there? What kind of message would they be sending to people? There's a confident person. How many of you can detect a confident person in comparison to an unconfident person? How do you tell who's confident and not confident? It's their body language. It's their eye contact. It's their smile. It's the way they hold themselves. It's their way they walk. You can tell by the way people interact. And that's a very important message. Are your messages congruent with a person who says, I can succeed in relationships? Or is your message, well, I'm barely surviving here. Please don't talk to me because I don't think you're going to like me in the first place because you can hurt me that doesn't work. 
So what I want to say is let's change that. Let's synchronize the messages. But now you're going to say, well, what if my belief is that I just am not good at relationships? Now we could have some real fun because I believe that everybody can be good at relationships. Everybody can be good. And here's how that works. You have to deal with the beliefs that keep you trapped in the negative responses. So what message do you want to put out to people? Let me introduce a concept here. The message that you want to put out to people has to be consistent with your long-term outcome or desired goal. Now I have a question. Do you have a goal? Well, if you don't have a goal or a desired outcome, then what are we working towards? We're going nowhere. So if you want to improve yourself, say, I want to be a more happy person. I want to be better in social situations. I want to communicate better with my spouse. I want to be better with my children. Great. You want to have a better relationship with your spouse? How are you going to do it? What's your goal? What's your intended desire? If you want to be better in social settings, you want to be get more dates, okay, what do I have to learn? What do I not know that I should know? in order to get more dates. Where am I putting myself to meet new people? You have to have a strategy. A strategy is what says to you, I am going somewhere. Now, sometimes people don't do these things because they don't believe that they will succeed. So what we need to now talk about is the fear that prevents us from doing the things, whether that be communicating with our spouse or whether that being a better parent or whether that be succeeding in a social setting. So what are those fears that we have and where do they originate from? That's a very, very important thing. Our fears generally originate from something that occurred to us early in our life, much like I talked about last week in the, as I described the attachment process. Those fears are can come from dating experiences. They can come from social experiences as a child or as a teenager or even as an adult in failed relationships. So If your belief is people don't like me, I'm going to encourage you to write down the beliefs that you have about yourself. And so one of the ways that I would start doing that today is saying, I believe what about me? And just make a list of all the things. I'm good at this. I'm bad at this. I'm not this. I'm that. Ultimately, what are the beliefs that you have about you? If you don't know what you believe about yourself, I just encourage you to get out the piece of paper and write that statement. I am or I believe I am. I am good at my profession. I am good at interacting with people. I'm not very good at one-on-one relationships. I'm not very good at taking care of my own needs. I'm not very good at eating well. I'm not very good at whatever, finances. I am good at taking care of the people around me and nurturing them. Okay, great. So what are you good at? What are you not so good at? Just do an honest evaluation of where you're at. And now let's say, all right, let's take the positive ones and let's let's continue doing them because you're already doing those things well. Now let's take the things that you're not doing as well at and let's spend some time nurturing that part of you because anything that other people can do, you can do. If you want to succeed at something, you can learn the skills to succeed at it. What we know about human nature is this. If you don't believe you can do something, you can't do it. You can't do it. And, and there's plenty of evidence with that. If you've ever heard the story of the first man who broke the four-minute mile, Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister is a very interesting case because his belief and the belief of the time was that there's no way that the human body, the human body would allow us to run under a four-minute mile. Well, Roger Bannister, he didn't accept that belief. He didn't accept that as a possibility. So Roger Bannister said, I wonder if I oxygenate my body, get more oxygen in the blood, 
blood by how I breathe, I wonder if that would allow me to run faster, a faster mile. And up to this point, nobody had bro uh, broken the four-minute mile. So well, here's what he did. He, he, he trained himself in breathing. Well, it came to run, he came to the point where he was going to run the mile and he had prepared himself. He had prepared his mind. His belief was, I think I can do it because I'm going to get the oxygen in my mind and in my blood and in my body and I will be able to break the four minute mile. Well, he ended up beating and running under a four minute mile. The first man to ever do it. Ironically, the same year, in fact, in one race, I believe there were six or seven who bro broke the four minute mile. Were they oxygenating themselves and their brain and their body and their mind? No. What happened is the belief had changed. Today, the fastest mile is about 3 minutes and 43 seconds. Can we break the 4-minute mile? Absolutely. Absolutely we can. Can you learn to succeed in relationships? Absolutely you can. Can you learn to connect in social settings? Absolutely. Can you learn to be good at one-on-one -on -one relationships? Yeah. But here's the concept. You have to expect that you're going to fail. Well, that, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? Well, here's my point. How many times do we fail? Most of our relationships fail. We don't succeed in every relationship. In fact, if you look at it statistically, most relationships do fail. Now you say, well, wait a second, 50% of marriages end up in failure, but that means 50% succeed. That's correct. But how many, how many people have you dated in relationships that have failed, that haven't worked out, they've came to an end? Most of them, it just takes one. It just takes one. So what we understand is we're not going to always succeed in relationships, and that is okay. So it, one of the fears that I have is that people just are stop. They stop too early. They stop developing their skills. They stop learning to communicate in their relationships. They stop developing who they really can be and who they are. So what I want to say is let's now deal with those beliefs that keep you trapped, that keep you pre that prevent you from succeeding in your relationships. So let's identify those areas of weakness and now let's set a goal to overcome those. Just like Roger Bannister, if you want to run under a four-minute mile, you've got to train and you've got to prepare for it. And guess what? You aren't going to do it the first time. It requires training and it requires a, an exerted effort. Train, train, train to the point where when you get the opportunity, you can succeed. Now, why does all this matter? We're talking about synchronizing your messages. If you want to be comfortable in one-on-one -on -one dating relationships or you want to learn to communicate better with your spouse, then you're going to have to spend the time learning how to do that. Now, let's just take, for example, communication in a marital relationship. One of the best ways to understand that, to synchronize your message, let's say that your message for your spouse is, I'm really hurt by you because you don't pay enough attention to me. How am I going to, feeling that hurt, how am I going to communicate to my spouse that I'm hurt by their lack of care or interest in my life? Well, now that's a question. How A good question. How do I do that? Because normally when you communicate that, you may be a person who begs for it. So you get angry at them and you plead for it. Or, or maybe you give them the silent treatment until they come to you. Or maybe you try to ignore them in an effort to hope that they will spend, maybe, maybe start talking with you. Whatever your strategy is, you've established a pattern. And that pattern is oftentimes the way couples fight. And the way couples fight is established based upon what person A does and person B does. So, for example, if Tom and Mary are married and Tom is frustrated because Mary has been spending all of the time with the children 
And so he starts to ignore her and he doesn't give her enough attention. And now she feels hurt because he's not giving her the attention. So she pulls away further, invests more of her time and energy in the children's lives. Tom begins to feel like, you know, all I am is a paycheck to you. And Mary says, all you want me for is sex. And we have no communication here. This couple has been basically broken down. The pattern is he pulls away, she pulls away. He then gets frustrated. They accuse each other of those things and they disconnect. Well, that's a part of the pattern. If we're going to synchronize our messages, we're going to be saying, Tom would be saying, you know, I would love to spend more time with you. But is he afraid to do that? Sure, he's afraid to do that. Why is he afraid to do that? Because he's afraid of rejection from Mary. So then we say, okay, Mary, what is it that she really wants? Well, she wants more of Tom's attention, more of his closeness, more time from him. So they both want the similar thing, but they're afraid to ask for it. So their message of the way they're asking for it is out of anger or out of frustration. They're saying, well, you don't care about me. And the other person's saying, well, you don't care about me. You care more about the children. Well, all you want is sex. Well, all you want is, right, my paycheck. So we go back and forth in this battle rather than synchronizing our message and saying, what do you really want? What do you really want? Well, if you look in your heart, you want to connect. You want that intimacy, right? Really what she's saying is, I just need more time. And Tom is saying, I just need to know that you care. Great. Well, let's synchronize our message. Is our content of what we're saying consistent with what we really want inside? My whole point with this is if your messages are not synchronized, you're not going to succeed in your relationships. Now let's apply this to the single person. The single person who walks into the room, who has this fear that people are looking at that person, their belief must be that there's something wrong with them. If they don't check that belief, if they don't alter that belief, then they're going to act consistent with it and they won't succeed in their relationships. So now let's talk about the individual's belief and say, okay, are you really a person who can't succeed in these relationships? If you believe that, you will act consistent with it. So your question may be to me, well, how do I change my belief if I'm not a person who believes I can succeed in one-on-one -on -one relationships? Well, let me give you the, the, the answer. It's through knowledge. It's through truth of who you really are. Who says you can't succeed in a relationship? Who wrote the book that says, sorry, you can't succeed? Nobody's written that book because it's already in your mind. So let's change that perception in your mind. And the way we change that is to say, all right, what do I want to believe about myself? Why do I act afraid? Why do I believe that other people are going to be looking down on me? Now, you're going to have to go back into your past, much like I talked about last week. If you have an uh, avoidant attachment style or uh, anxious ambivalent attachment style, you're going to need to spend time altering those behaviors to becoming more secure, more happy, less afraid of intimacy, less afraid of closeness in relationships. And how do you do that? We talked a little bit about that last time in our class as we were talking about finding and creating true intimacy. So one of the things we we're talking about is learning to synchronize your messages and the power of changing your beliefs. If you believe you're not a good person, then we have to spend time thinking, how can I increase my self-worth, my self-perception, my self-concept to realize that I am a person of worth and I am a person of value? Well, here's how we synchronize them. We basically recognize our true value and then we act consistent with true value. So we walk into a setting like that and say, I, I can make people happy. I am a person who makes good relationships. I have all the qualities. I'm an honest person. I'm good at affirming the worth of other people. I am a person who is learning and growing. Who wouldn't want to be with that kind of a person? Everybody likes to be around people who are positive, who are happy, who are optimistic. And so that's what I'm going to encourage you to be, a powerful, happy, optimistic person. 
So when you walk into a place, your belief is, you know what, there's going to be people here I can meet. And if I don't meet them tonight, that's okay. I will get the opportunity another time. So I don't expect to fail. I expect to succeed. So we go into a setting with the expectation that we can and that we will succeed. It's the process of synchronizing our messages. You have to override your fears. Then you have to get make sure that your message is consistent with what you feel inside. And if you feel inside that you're flawed, bad in some way, then you have to work on those beliefs so then you can engage in relationships with the belief, I can succeed, I am a person of worth, this is fun, I enjoy meeting people, I am good at one-on-one relationships. And if you don't believe you're good at one-on-one relationships, practice and practice and practice. You don't have to sit there and say, there's nothing I can do about it. There is something you can do about it. And that is what's exciting about the whole change process. You can learn new skills. For example, if you struggle in one-on-one conversations, did you know the best way to start a conversation is through sharing information, something that you've learned, a tidbit? By the way, did you know would be a good example? Or, hey, what do you think about the sports, whatever sporting event? Or, hey, what are your thoughts on politics? Do you like Ron Paul or do you like whatever it may be? My point is, is these are these are things that if you're studying up on, you can ask people and you can begin to develop conversation skills that enhance your ability to connect with other people. Did you know, just as an example, that 19% of people are chronically shy? They they are they are afraid. Up to about 42% of people say that in certain situations and settings that they are shy. That's 42% of people that have situations where they feel shy. Well, great. These people are just like you. They're just like you. Great. So what am I afraid of? If we put people up on this pedestal and we think people are better than we are, then already we've discounted our true value and our true worth. Why not go into a setting and a situation and say, wait, I can, I, I'm a good person. Why would they not like me? And now we're talking about synchronizing our messages. So we go into settings wanting to create intimate relationships and intimate friendships. And then the whole process becomes fun. The whole process becomes fun because your messages are synchronized. If you are unsynchronized, you're much less likely to succeed in all relationships, whether that be marital or whether that be in your single life. So here's what we've got to do is we've got to help you synchronize your messages. And the moment you synchronize those messages, you're going to succeed because you aren't going to let the fears guide you. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on fears. I've written an article titled, The Fear of Intimacy Club, Are You a Member? And you can find that article at discoverandchange.com. One of the key concepts of that article is to identify the characteristics of people who live in the fear of intimacy club. I believe that many people have a fear of intimacy. They have a fear of being close to others or letting others close to them. And it is this fear that prevents them from creating a healthy relationship. So, what are some of the fears? And if you're single, you can identify this in other people, which will let you know whether they are prepared for a relationship or not. Or you can also look inside of yourself and say, oh my goodness, I do these things. So, let's look at this real quick. First, are they emotionally unavailable? Now, this could be in a marriage as well. I probably ought to emphasize that because I know many married people who fit within these categories. So, first question... Am I emotionally unavailable? Is my partner emotionally unavailable? Or is the person I'm dating emotionally unavailable? So what does emotionally unavailable mean? It means somebody who when you need them, they are unable to express emotions. They're unable to express compassion or empathy. They don't understand you. 
I was talking with a lady the other day who had a need from her boyfriend. And, and basically she called up her boyfriend and said, I need, I need some help. And he said, I'm too busy watching this TV show. Whoa, hello. He can't make sacrifice to her and she needed help. And he was unavailable. Emotionally unavailable people are people who they can't tie into their own emotions. And they really can't stand your emotions because they don't know how to help. And they refuse to help. An emotionally unavailable person has a fear of intimacy. And they are not likely to succeed in their relationships. So number one of identifying people that have a fear of intimacy is identifying people who are emotionally unavailable. And really what's occurred in them is they don't, they can't access their own emotions. They have a fear. And so they, they don't let you know how they feel. These are the people who are so hard to detect really how they feel that you're always guessing. It's like you're playing a, a game. And every once in a while they'll give you a snippet of their emotion and then it shuts down as about as quickly as it opened up and you're thinking, I like that person because you actually let me know how you were feeling. Now I feel like I'm shut off again and I'm all out here on my own trying to guess how you're really feeling. Are you interested in me or are you not interested in me? Are you upset at me or are you not upset at me? I can't tell. And sometimes people who are emotionally unavailable, they're just very hard to read. So that's the first part. The next is the fear of touch and physical intimacy. If you look at most types of intimacy, typically touch and physical intimacy is the easier part, especially when couples are interested in each other or whether they're married. But ironically, people who have a fear of touch, they also have developed, a, obviously, a fear of intimacy. Now, where does this come from? It generally comes from their past and their background, but it's important to understand that some people are, are uncomfortable with touch and they haven't dealt with whatever the issue is that prevents them from feeling comfortable with touch. Now, it's something that we can overcome, but we have to learn how to become comfortable and safe. Many people who've been physically harmed or abused or sexually abused oftentimes will struggle with touch and physical intimacy. I understand that. I, in fact, I, I've seen so many people who've experienced that, that now as adults have a difficult time with touch and intimacy. But what we've discovered is absolutely exciting. And here's the, here's the deal. When you learn that you are a person of worth and that your sexual intimacy is something that you should enjoy and you can enjoy and you can learn to relax and literally you can go through exercises teaching yourself to relax through physical touch and closeness then it becomes a whole different ballgame. You aren't threatened with the fear of being hurt or abused again because in the moment you're living with this person who is actually validating you rather than the person who's not validating you. Now, there's a, there's a caveat to this. If you're in a relationship with somebody who is has been abusive, who has been hurtful, then that type of physical touch and intimacy needs to be talked about and it needs to be something that you never feel threatened in. It needs to feel safe for you Otherwise, we'll have problems. But there are people that you need to be able to identify. Is this person uncomfortable with touch and physical intimacy? If they are, then they might not yet be ready for a relationship. Next is a person who is overly jealous and lacks trust. The person who's overly jealous is a person who's going to struggle in their relationships because they will constantly accuse their partners of infidelity, of cheating, of looking at somebody. And that form of jealousy, whether it's accurate or inaccurate, oftentimes creates a lot of conflict and tension in the relationship. The reason why is because there's no trust. So one of the things that prevents true intimacy is people who are overly jealous and they lack trust. 
Now, if you have offended your partner through cheating, through infidelity, you can't instantly expect them to trust you because that would be unfair to them. In fact, in many instances, that takes time, one year, two years, even up to three years at times to rebuild the trust and sometimes even longer than that. But if you are dating somebody and they are overly jealous of you, I was teaching a class, teaching this class, Fear of Intimacy, and one lady raised her hand and she said, you know what's interesting about that is I was dating a boy, we just we just broke off this engagement, but what occurred was that prior to them getting serious, she had gone out with another person. In fact, they had spent the day together, but she, had, she hadn't yet told him that she had another date because she really was starting to like him and she'd already had an obligation with this other guy. At the end of the date, she basically said, "I need to go. I, I've got a, somewhere I've got to go." Came out that she had need to go on a date with this other person. Well, he kind of overlooked that initially, but over time, he used that against her to say, "I can't believe you went out with this other person. I can't believe you did that." And they had they weren't even serious yet. They weren't even serious yet. And so now, a few weeks later, he's now saying, you know, I, I don't trust you. I'm, and, and his jealousy came out. And, and what I would suggest in a situation like that is his own insecurity was preventing him from creating intimacy. And so at that point, he's, he's not yet ready for a relationship. He has to deal with that insecurity before he can connect in a relationship. The fourth part that, that prevents us from creating true intimacy is being overly shy or overly self-conscious. And that goes back to the concept of our own beliefs. If I don't believe I can be successful, my own beliefs will prevent me from creating true intimacy in my relationships. I've seen, I've even seen married people who are so self-conscious that they don't allow themselves to enjoy their relationships. And so what we encourage people to do there is deal with the beliefs that keep them away from intimacy. And I talked about that earlier. The fifth part is being needy and dependent upon relationships. This is the kind of person that, as we talked about in the beginning, was is an anxious, ambivalent personality in their relationships. They have an anxious, ambivalent attachment style. They're very needy and dependent upon a relationship. This is the kind of person that has to be in a relationship. If they aren't in a relationship, they kind of are going crazy and they drive their friends crazy because they're, they're talking about guys and they're wanting to be in a relationship and I've got to meet somebody. I've got to, I've got to get involved. I've got to be in a relationship. And their neediness is what pushes people away. Now, Ironically, their neediness is also a fear of intimacy because it comes out in a fear of rejection. And when people start to get close to them, they become uncomfortable because it's almost too intimate. Those, that's the fifth part of what prevents people from creating intimacy and is a part of the fear of intimacy. Number six is demanding love. Demanding love. How many times have, have you been around somebody or in, seen people who demand to be loved? Tell me that you love me. Tell me that you care about me. I was talking with this lady just the other day, uh, just, a, just a really nice lady, and uh, she said that she was dating this guy and it, it made quite a bit of sacrifices to be together. And after being together for a while, she realized that she, he just wasn't the guy that she wanted to be with. And so she, she basically said, you know what, we've got to end this relationship. And, and he was so frustrated. He didn't know what to do. So she was starting to pull away. And man, he became more and more controlling. The more she pulled away, the more controlling he, he was. So one day he comes to her office and basically fascinating, fascinating concept comes to the office of her work unannounced and basically goes into her office and says, says, tell me that you love me. 
tell me that you love me. And she said, uh, I, I love you. Now, inside she's thinking, I don't really love this guy, but I don't want him to make a scene at my work. And so he, he gets off and it, he gets in there and is talking with her and, and, and he's getting ready to walk out the door. And he says, you know, if you don't tell me that you, that you love me and that you want to be with me, I'm going to yell it from the, from the office here. Now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to force love. You, you can't force love. You can't do that. But people who have a fear of intimacy, sometimes they, what they will do is they will try to make people love them. They will try to force them to love them. You can't control another person into loving you. Again, that is another sign of a fear of intimacy because let's say that the person does submit, the person does give in, the person does try to love you. Eventually, they will not be able to meet your needs because you're so demanding. They'll never be good enough. Now, those are six things that prevent us from finding and creating true intimacy that really fit with a fear of intimacy. And, I, and what I've titled that is those are the characteristics of those who fit within the fear of intimacy club. And what I want to say is if you want out of that club, do exactly the opposite of those things. You can't demand love. If you're too needy and dependent upon a relationship, you can't. You can't continually succeed if you're so needy. So you've got to change that. If you're shy or overly self-conscious, do the things that would reduce your self-consciousness. Increase your belief in yourself. Strengthen your self-identity, your self-concept. Spend time learning, reading new books. Become involved. If you're overly jealous and you're lack, lacking in trust, in, learn to increase the trust in your relationship. Identify people who are trustworthy. Do those things that strengthen you in that area. Next, if you have a hard time with physical touch and physical intimacy, become comfortable with it. And how we do that is we deal with our past. We learn in a gradual process to become sensitized and comfortable with touch itself. One of the things I do with married couples who have a struggle with intimacy is we do what we call a sensitization process where we actually have them carefully touch in safe places to the point where they become more and more comfortable with sexual touch and sexual intimacy. And then if you've been emotionally unavailable or you've been around people who are emotionally unavailable, learn to express your emotions. Dr. Daniel Goleman in his book, Emotional Intelligence, has a fascinating, fascinating concept there where he, he's talking about how we become emotionally available and we improve our emotional skills. If you've read Emotional Intelligence, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. Emotional Intelligence is a fantastic book. So those are the six things that prevent us from creating true intimacy in our relationships and really a fear of intimacy is what's behind all that. We can overcome that. If you're like most people, you're going to ask the question, well, what if I have this fear of intimacy? What if I am afraid of closeness? How do I overcome it? Well, one of the things that we teach people is a concept called a reaction sequence. And many people, this is probably the most powerful thing that I teach them in overcoming their fear of intimacy. And so what I do is help, I explain to them what a fear of, in, what in reaction sequence is, and then we apply it to a fear of intimacy. So here's, here's what a reaction sequence is. In order for the human mind to make sense of what it is experiencing, it creates a common response to some type of a stimulus, okay? So this is what we call reaction sequence. So for example, if you find yourself or observe in another person a shift from one emotional state, let's say you're relatively calm, and then in another instant, you find yourself extremely fearful. 
in a split second's time. This is what we call a reaction sequence. It could be triggered by any emotional experiences that stem from traumatic or negative memories from the past. So here's how it works with somebody who has a fear of closeness. First of all, let's say that the two individuals, Isaac and Jill, they've been dating for a couple weeks. They're both interested in getting to know each other. Jill has been holding back from holding Isaac's hand or kissing him because she was hurt as a child. So here, here's an example of her reaction sequence. Stimulus. She and Isaac are going to dance with some friends and then they will be alone. So Jill's thought is she starts thinking about ways that she can avoid kissing Isaac. So the very part of this process is she realizes that she's going to be alone and she starts thinking, how can I make sure that I don't kiss him? Her emotion is she begins to feel upset inside her chemical release, and this is what happens next. The stimulus is that they're going to be alone. The thought is that how can I avoid it? She starts to feel upset inside. That's the emotions. Then she gets chemicals that run through her body, basically fear and tension that these chemicals release because the body's now getting ready for something to happen to it. Her body becomes involved and she begins feeling sick and nauseous. So at this point, she hasn't even gone on the date, but she's starting to feel sick and nauseous because she's thinking, oh, we might be alone. This is only two weeks into the dating relationship. So Jill wonders if she should call off the date or because maybe she's feeling sick. Maybe she just says, ah, I don't, I really just don't have to go. But a part of her says, but he's really cute. He's a good guy. Well, maybe I, I'll go, but I'll just make sure I'm really cautious. And so, so she's starting to feel this physiologically. And her thought is, well, maybe I should go. Maybe I should cancel it because I'm feeling nauseous. And it'd be easy to feel, to have that as an excuse. I'm feeling nauseous and not go. So she wonders if any of her relationships, because anytime someone starts to get really close to her, she finds herself pulling back. Her belief is that she will never be able to have a serious relationship because she is afraid that all men will hurt her. Now, this reaction sequence started with the stimulus that she was just going to be alone with Isaac. Her thought was, okay, how can I avoid kissing him? All of a sudden, the thought of kissing him makes her feel upset inside. She feels these chemicals inside of her body. She begins to be upset and becomes nauseous. Her thought is, I do like him, but I'm not sure I can ever do this. Then she comes up with the belief that she will never... And this is what she recognized. I'll never be able to have a serious relationship. And this belief then led to her response. She has fun at the dance, but as soon as the dance is over, she tells Isaac that she is not feeling well and that she needs to go home. That is what we call a reaction sequence. Most reaction sequences occur because we have this preconditioned mindset. It's the pattern of the mind. For example, if in married couples, couples fight in patterns, as I described. In single people, they act consistent with our patterns. It's the reaction sequence that we're trying to break here. And so one of the things that prevent people from creating true intimacy and their fear of intimacy that guides them is this overwhelming, this, these patterns that, that overwhelm them. Now, how do you overcome a reaction sequence? Well, the first thing I just gave to you is you understand your patterns. You understand your reaction sequence. So if, if you're taking notes today, one of the things that you could write down is a stimulus, the thought, that's followed by an emotion which releases chemicals into your system. Then you have a second thought is which what, what we call the battle. For Jill, this battle was, I kind of like him, but the other part of her was saying, maybe I should call it off because I'm not comfortable with touch. Then she comes up with a belief. Her ultimate belief was, I'll never be able to succeed in relationships because I'm afraid that all men will hurt me. That is her belief, and we have to go after that belief, and we have to challenge that belief to help her rewrite that. And finally, her response was, when she was at the dance, 
She went, danced, had a good time, but then as soon as over, she realized she would be alone with him and she began not feeling well and sick. That's her reaction sequence. And so what we have to do is we have to change our reaction sequences so we can succeed. The first part of creating any change is that awareness of what that reaction sequence is. Most reaction sequences happen so fast that people don't realize what's happening to them. However, you can map out your reaction sequence by taking time to write it down, write down each of the steps described that I just described, and then you have both, you're going to have both positive and negative reaction sequences. And so one of the challenges that I encourage you to do, and what I would encourage Jill to do in this situation, is to look at what this Isaac guy was really like. What are his characteristics? Are you really threatened by him? What would you do if he did try holding your hand? Could you relax? Could you enjoy this process of getting to know him? Can you maintain your boundaries? Is he really going to hurt you? So you learn to live in the moment rather than the fears of the past. That's a very important process of creating uh, and overcoming a fear of intimacy. As we begin to change because of our reaction sequence, we ultimately change our lives. Reaction sequences are negative patterns and positive patterns, but more in particular, the negative patterns are what keep us and hold us back. I encourage you to spend some time thinking about your fears of intimacy, whether you're married or whether you're single, and learn what your reaction sequences are in certain elements of your life. For example, if you find yourself overly jealous, that's a reaction sequence that probably ties back into earlier uh, experiences in your life. If you're overly shy, what happens to you when you walk into a social setting? What type of patterns do you have and how can you rewrite those patterns because those are reaction sequences that you act in consistent ways. And what I want to tell you is anytime you want to create change, you all you have to do is rewrite your reaction sequence. Change the pattern, change the habits. And that is a very powerful concept. You can rewrite the pathways in the brain and how you do that is you change the patterns. So that's the concept of a reaction sequence and it's very powerful in helping people overcome a fear of intimacy. And it fits hand in hand with what I was talking about earlier, synchronizing our messages, putting our messages in harmony with what we really want in life. So if you want to create positive reaction sequences, then what you need to do in any setting is anticipate success. So you create an environment where you will succeed. So, for example, in this situation with Jill, going back to her response, what I would say to Jill is, okay, Jill, take some time, and when you get to the dance, identify his characteristics. What are the positive things about Isaac? What are the things that you like about him? Does he smile? When you are alone, how does, how does he treat you? Put yourself alone, but still in a social setting. So, for example, uh, go out to eat in a setting where you are, are alone, but you're still in a social setting. Let him know that you exp that you want to do it this way because you feel more comfortable because of, I've been hurt in the past and I need to be in this type of a setting. It's very important for you to be able to establish the boundaries that you want if you're going to create a healthy and truly intimate relationship. Today, we started off by talking about helping you identify your values. We talked about synchronizing your messages. We've talked about the things that prevent us from finding and creating true intimacy. And then we've talked about reaction sequences. Reaction sequences are the patterns in our behaviors that lead to our habits, that lead to what we do, that oftentimes prevent us from succeeding in a relationship. Let me tell you a story that relates to this. I was talking with a woman who had identified her reaction sequence. And every time she got into a social setting, her fears would override her. She literally would go into a place where there were other single people and she would freeze. 
She didn't know what to do or how to respond. And so one of the things that we talked about was when you get into that setting, we helped her in advance to prepare her mind of how she could respond. So when she got into a setting that she was uncomfortable with, one of the first things that she did is she looked to see if there was anybody that she knew. If she didn't know anybody, she would then say, okay, I'm going to find a person in here that feel that looks safe or somebody that needs a friend. And so then what she would do is she would go make a friend and she would just try to find a person who was by themselves and introduce herself in a safe way. Then at least she knew one person. And then she would say, okay, I've met this one person. Now I want to go meet another person. And then that's what she did. She developed, she began to develop skills in talking with one person. And then she introduced, that other person introduced her to other people. And she became to get, get to know people in that fashion. And what she realized is that she had nothing to be afraid of. She spent some time developing that skill in social settings to the point where every time she went into a new setting, she would use the same pattern over and over again that worked for her. That is rewriting a reaction sequence of fear. That's just one example. We can change our behaviors and patterns that prevent us from intimacy by doing these things, uh, by changing our reaction sequences. Now, real quick, one of the things that I want to conclude with today that I mentioned at the beginning, and this is, we're shifting gears a little bit here, but I think this is a very valuable thing. For example, we're going to be talking about gender and intimacy for a little bit. Did you know that women, and then we're just going to talk about women and intimacy for a second. Women are more likely to find intimacy in female relationships. And what we mean by that is verbal and emotional intimacy. Women are more likely to find intimacy in female relationships because of the verbal and emotional intimacy. Females in general are more personal and they're more willing to give self-disclosures with their female friends than they are with their intimate partners. The reason why is because they feel more understood. Now, this isn't always the case. These are just generalizations based upon research that I've that I found. Number uh, three, women are more likely to confront and discuss conflict with their friends than with men. Women are more likely to confront and discuss conflict with their friends than they are with men. The reason why often is that they feel less threatened by their friends than they do with men. Number four. And this is really interesting. Women are more likely to express affectionate feelings to another person. And that could be their partner or that could be and that could be their friends, but women are generally more affectionate in expressing that affection than men are. And that these are just general findings on intimacy. Women are generally speaking more affectionate, they're more likely to discuss conflict with their friends. They are very good at, at more self-disclosures, and they're more likely to find intimacy in their female friendships. Now, that is just what we found in terms of women and intimacy. The next part, it has to do with romantic relationships. And this is going to be no surprise to people, but I think it's important that we identify. First of all, men favor sexual intimacy a bit more than verbal intimacy, while women favor verbal intimacy. Obviously, that makes sense. But now let's put this into application. If women like verbal intimacy, would it not behoove men to develop their verbally intimate skills? And if they did so, then they would more likely be able to have a healthy, intimate relationship with a female. If women want verbal intimacy, men, why don't we give it to them? Why don't we learn to be verbally intimate? Now, on the converse, if men favor sexual intimacy, the more sexual intimacy a man has, the more emotionally available and intimate he will be. So, women, if men enjoy the sexually intimate aspect of relationship, it's feeling safe in that and developing that and nurturing that relationship in that fashion. Number two, 
women initiate more verbal intimacy with their husbands than husbands do with them. Now, obviously, that makes sense because women are more verbal. Women talk more. And so women are going to initiate that more. Husbands, boyfriends, that is a great thing. But if you want to increase your relationship, man, learn to be more verbally intimate with those people, especially the women in your life. Number three, women express more empathy in their in their relationships than men do and that's just it women are more empathic they show more empathy and that is just a phenomenal thing about women as a whole they show more empathy men if you want to increase your success in relationships show more empathy next women are less likely than men to withdraw from conflict in their romantic relationships one of the things that women generally don't like based upon research is they want to resolve the conflict that's why they will chase after a man that's why they want to resolve the conflict well great they want to do that men why do they want to do that it's because they want to have harmony and they want to have peace with you it's not that they're trying to chase you down and to, to make you talk about something they want it resolved so if you want to develop a healthy intimate relationship you understand that women are more likely to talk about it conflict and problems than men are. So men, one of the things we have to do is we have to learn how to listen to what the women are really saying. These are just general rules to help us increase the intimacy in our relationships. Now to number six, the final thing. Women are more likely to initiate conflict and men are more likely to withdraw. Withdrawing from conflict in relationships is not helpful. It's what Dr. John Gottman calls stonewalling. It's not a good idea. So there are some of the key gender differences. Next time, I'm going to introduce six types of intimacy, and we will be talking about a really cool concept that helps many of my clients. It's called intimate interactions, and we will discuss how to be more content and happy in your relationships.